Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again this morning with thankful hearts. For we know that you are the one that has brought us here. We know, Father, that you are the one that puts a desire in your people's heart to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that you have given us in Christ. And we look to him for all that we need. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the scriptures. And we pray that as we look at them today, that you would give us understanding of them. For we know that unless your spirit comes and gives us the understanding that all is vain, so we cry out to you, Father, to give us that which we need by your Spirit, so that we may feed upon your truth, so that we may become more like Christ. And for those, Father, that do not know him, we pray that your Spirit would work in their their life to open up their eyes, to unstop their ears, so that they may look to Christ, that they may hear the truth, that they may turn from their sins, and be saved. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you minister to those in need, that you watch over others, that you would bring them back to us quickly. We pray, Father, for your church as the gospel is preached throughout the world, that many would come into your kingdom and be used of you to bring great honor and glory to your name. And all of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 12 and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Mark chapter 12 and we will begin with verse 13 and read through verse 17. Mark 12 beginning with verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisies, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled. At him. As you read the Gospels, you cannot help but be amazed at all that Jesus does. As we look at the supernatural things that he accomplished, as we look at the miracles that he performed, even the sermons that he preached, and the way Jesus answers the questions of the religious leaders as we have in this particular passage. Now, it would seem to me that these men would have been smart enough to realize that they should not ask Jesus any more questions. I mean, time and time again, they've asked Jesus a question, and what has he done? He calls them to have egg on their face. He calls them to look foolish. So it seems as if at some point they would finally quit asking him questions. But they did not. They continued to 
asking questions, seeking to entrap him. But yet Jesus was simply too magnificent. He was too knowledgeable for them. But their hatred caused them to lose all common sense. That's why they continued to ask him questions. And we see that in this passage. I mean, as we saw earlier, as we were looking in John, I mean in Mark's gospel, we saw that they sent those who were the priest, the scribes, and the elders to ask him a question, and he exposed them. And after he had exposed them, they left, and then we have this second group that appears here. They are made up of the Pharisees and the Herodians. These two groups despised one another. They could not stand each other. It's kind of like what John MacArthur says. Satan can orchestrate all the various forms of false religion under his control to attack the truth. And history records some of those unholy alliances. Truth, on the other hand, cannot make alliance with error. So you have these two groups who hated one another joining forces to attack Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, which we are very familiar with, we've seen them throughout the Gospel of Mark, they stood for, we could say, the old ways, for the tradition of their day. They were the hardliners. They were obsessed with tradition and the law of God. They had composed 613 laws to protect the Ten Commandments. Of course, early on, they had the right mindset But yet they took these laws and they made them a burden to the people. And they would have nothing whatsoever to do with the Roman government. They despised the Roman government. On the other hand, the Herodians, they had made friends with the Roman government. They were Jewish politicians. They were not religious individuals. And they had compromised their principles in joining forces with the Roman government. And they wanted power. They enjoyed what was taking place as far as the Roman rule because Rome had given them some power and they wanted to restore a Herod to the throne there in Judea so that they could continue to enjoy their peace and power and they saw Jesus was a threat to this in their life. Remember all the way back at the very beginning of uh, John, I don't know why I keep saying, uh, well, wait a minute, I said it backwards that time, didn't I? Anyway, I keep saying, John, we looked at the Gospel of John a number of years ago. But anyway, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, after Jesus had healed the man with the withered hand. Remember what it says there in verse 6? Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So all the way back at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel... The Pharisees and the Herodians have joined together to plot to destroy Jesus. So when Jesus exposes their formalism and their love of power, they came together and they tried to destroy Him. Now we are seeing something like this today, even in our society. When men dislike a person, when they dislike His principles or what they dislike His ways... They will attack him endlessly. They will do or say whatever it takes to destroy that person. 
I mean, we see that happening right now with the President of the United States. There are people that hate him so much they'll say and do whatever they can to seek to remove him from office. And it's sad that our politics have sunk to this level. As often said, politics makes strange bedfellows. And it's strange bedfellows when rhinos join with Democrats to attack the president. But that's what they're doing. I mean, these two groups usually are totally against one another, but they have joined forces to try to destroy our president. And we need to pray for our president. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that our president is a godly religious man. What I'm saying, God has placed him over us, and we'll see as we continue to look at this passage this morning, that we are to pray for him and support him and encourage him and pray that God would bless him to bless us as individuals so that we can continue to have freedom of religion. Now notice something else. They claim to admire Jesus. And they lavish this false praise upon him there in verse 14. I mean, they state three particular qualities that I want you to see. And they claim to admire Jesus. Of course, all of these qualities are true about Jesus, but yet they didn't mean for them to be true about Jesus. They were simply seeking to flatter him so that he might leave an open hole so that they might cause him to follow fall. But notice first they say, that he was a man of integrity. They say, you are true. In other words, they were saying that he was a genuine man, a real man. In other words, he was not like them. Of course, they would not admit that. They thought that they too were true men, but they were not. They were simply hypocritical. Jesus wasn't like them. He wasn't play-acting about his religion. He was the real thing. And this is one of the reasons why they hated him. Because his very life condemned their life. His very life was the standard. Why? Because his life was perfect. And their life wasn't. So every time they saw him, every time they sp- he spoke, they were condemned by what he said. And they resisted it. And this is the same reason why people hate the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments is God's perfect law. When you look at the Ten Commandments, it condemns you. That's the reason why people want the Ten Commandments removed. They want them removed from our schools and from government buildings. I remember hearing a story uh, in one courtroom. The lawyer stood up and he said, I would like those to be removed, pointing to the Ten Commandments. And the judge asked why. He said, because those condemn my client who was on trial for murder. Well, that's what people want. They want them removed. They don't want anything to condemn them. Now, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 2, and he says a bishop must be blameless. In other words, he must be a man that is true. Husband and one wife, temperate, sober-minded, a good behavior, hospitable, not given to greed. And Jesus set this standard for every one of these qualities. He was perfect. He is our example. And the church must not lower God's standard. It must not lower God's standards for the pastor. Of course, no pastor is perfect. You know that. I'm your pastor. You know I'm not perfect. If you don't believe that, talk to my wife and she'll give you a whole lot of reasons why I'm not perfect. But we must not be disqualified from the office 
in not being a trustworthy person. We must be a trustworthy person. I remember many years ago I was talking to an individual and there was an issue that had come up. And I was telling him, I said, you just need to trust me as your pastor on this particular issue. And I finally said, look, if you cannot trust me as your pastor, then you better find another church and find another pastor that you can trust because I must be able to be trusted by you to continue to be your pastor. I mean, Jesus' disciples trusted him. They trusted him with their very life because he was a man of integrity. And a pastor must be a man of integrity. And all Christians must seek to be people of integrity. Someone that is true. That's one of our callings as Christians. Now the second qualification that he mentions there, the second quality, it says that Jesus did not seek man's approval. You do not regard the person of men. In other words, Jesus never toned down His message, even when the religious leaders were in the crowd, he would not tone down the message. If anything, he would emphasize more strongly to those in the crowd. Remember on one occasion when Jesus was called into a Pharisee's house to have supper, and he was criticized because he did not wash his hands as they had done, did not perform the ceremonial rituals that they were performing. In Luke chapter 11, it says, And as they spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? And then Jesus goes on and he rebukes them and gives them some woes. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen. And then men who walk over them are not aware. And he goes on and he blasts these Pharisees there in this Pharisee's house, pointing out what kind of individuals they were. Jesus never worried about what the religious individuals thought. He would go right after them. What Jesus was concerned was what? To please his heavenly Father in everything. Now the Apostle Paul, he followed the same example. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I still please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And then he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, Just as if we been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. As Christians, we must always seek to speak to please God, not our fellow man. Samuel Davies, who was a Presbyterian preacher in the 1600s. He died at the age of 37. He also wrote the hymn, Great God of Wonders. He made one visit to England, 
And there when he met John and Charles Wesley, somehow or another he was invited to preach before George III. During the sermon, the king spoke out loud to his wife, and as a result, the entire congregation looked over to the king when he spoke. Davies stopped in his sermon, and he said, When the lion roars, the beast of the forest tremble. When Jehovah speaks, let the kings of this earth be silent before him. You could have heard a pin drop. See, Davies was not intimidated by the king. He knew that God had given him a task, and that task was to preach God's word, and he was not to be interrupted as he preached God's word. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. May we be like Jesus, may we be like Paul, may we be like Samuel Davies and not look for the approval of men. That's one of the greatest sins that we can commit as Christians, constantly looking for the approval of men. Young people have that problem. Peer pressure is what it's called. You want the approval of your fellow man. Don't allow Satan to deceive you so where you seek to have the approval of man. Seek the approval of God. Now, the third quality that is mentioned there and said about Jesus is taught the way of God in truth. Now, I wish this could be said about all preachers. Sadly, you know as well as I know, this is not the case. Jesus didn't string together, as he preached, a string of stories as a stand-up comedian? Or did he give a boring lecture? That, that kind of reminds me this week, as I told you before, some of you don't know, I, I enjoy watching Andy Griffith. And on Andy Griffith's show, I've seen it, I don't know how many times, but I always watch it again. I've seen it probably ten times where they're having the church service and they have a visiting preacher from New York that is there and he's giving this lecture to them and, and they're all just acting like they're amazed at his lecture and it shows the people in the congregation and of course Opie's there trying to catch a fly. Any of you children trying to catch a fly this morning? And, and Barney's there yawning, and Andy's fighting it too. And, and it's interesting to watch them as he goes to this sermon. Then out, after the sermon, they're standing there at the door as the congregation leaves, and, and they're congratulating the pastor on uh, the sermon that he preached. And, and Barney comes up, and of course he didn't preach on sin, but Barney says, that's a good sermon on sin. Well, he heard nothing that he preached. But it made me think of the lecture that here, Jesus did not give boring lectures. No, he taught the Word of God. He exalted Christ himself. He exalted God. He exalted the truth. The way of salvation was laid out. And he revealed how God was a loving Father. How God was personable. How he was ruling and caring, and able to save sinners. He taught them what it meant to love God first and your neighbor second. William Perkins, in his book, The Art of Prophesying, a book for preachers to read, says, The Word of God alone is to be preached in its perfection and inner consistency 
Scripture is the exclusive subject of preaching and the only field in which the preacher is to labor. It's so sad that many fill the pulpit today and they never open the Word of God. You can see one on TV that will hold the Bible up and say, this is the Word of God, but he never preaches from the Word of God. He probably doesn't even know what the Word of God says. And it's sad that many follow such men like that. Jesus preached God's Word and He taught how to live it out. All you have to do is read the Sermon on the Mountain. You'll see that. Oh, that every preacher would be faithful to the task of preaching the Word of God. Now second, after they had sought to set Jesus up for a fall, they finally asked Him their question there in verse 14b when it says, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, these men were intellectuals. They thought they were conservative, but I'd more or less say they were intellectual liberals, not even understanding conservatism as far as the Scripture is concerned. And their their question is a very difficult question. I mean, it's like being asked, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, what are you implying? If you say no, what are you insinuating? I mean, that's a difficult question. I mean, if if you can only give her a yes or no answer here. So they're trying to trap Jesus in a similar way here. Because if Jesus says yes, what? Then he is insinuating that you are to be under the Roman government and you are to pay them and therefore he will turn the people against them. Now, now to put this in context, we need to understand that the Jews had been under the Roman government since 63 B.C. So they had been under his, their authority for almost 100 years. They had not been free because, remember before that, they had all the other countries that they were under. They were under the Babylons for a long time. They had not been free for over 500 years. And in AD 6, there was a Jew named Judas who led a revolt against paying taxes to Rome and told the people that if they paid their taxes to Rome, they would no longer be under the rule of God, but they'd be under the rule of man. And of all men, they would be under the rule of Gentiles. And Judas and his followers led a rebellion against them at that time, against Rome. And they made the statement that Israel was not for sale. They had a slogan, no tribute to Rome. Matter of fact, this rebellion was even written about there in Acts chapter uh, 5, verse 37, when Peter and the others were put into jail and they were debating it in the Sanhedrin what to do to them. Uh, Galilean, he, he stood up, Gabriel, and he said, Remember Judas when he led his revolt, which of course was in A.D. 6, and he was put down. In other words, he was saying, let these men do what they're doing, and it will be put down. They had such a great hatred for paying taxes to Rome that it even went further. There were many kinds of taxes, just like in our day and time today. They had a 10% on all grain, 
they had a fifth on wine, not, not a fifth of wine, but a fifth of tax on wine and fruit. An income tax of so 1% of all men. And then they had this poll tax that is spoken of here that was placed on men beginning at the age of 14 all the way up to the age of 65. And it was placed on women, I don't know why, but it began at 12. So two years earlier, women had to begin to pay this poll tax all the way up to 65. It was one denarius, which was a day's wage for a working man. And all these taxes at that particular time, just like in our day, was a burden to them. I mean, we don't like paying taxes, right? It's said that the average American today pays 10000 500 in taxes, 14% of the average income of an American family. Of course, we know that there's other taxes that we have to pay, property tax, vehicle tax, and, and smaller taxes. Every time you go to the grocery store, you buy anything, you see that there's a tax included on that. I tried to find a list. Somebody wrote up a list, and I can't remember how many different taxes there were that we paid. I know there's way over 20 different taxes that we pay as Americans. So we're, we're taxed, as we say, to death. And they were too. So taxes in Jesus' day were collected by publicans or tax collectors. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And they were hated. They were despised. They were seen as traitors to their country for working for the Roman government. So they were the lowest of low. They were seen as corrupt men, merciless men. Now, of course, added to this, both ancient and modern government have glorified their leaders by putting their image on a coin. And this was the case here. I mean, if you have change in your pocket, you know that change. A penny has who? Children. Abraham Lincoln. And then you go up, and I was, I was quizzing my wife. I'm not going to embarrass my wife asking her if she knew who was on each corn was. But on, on the nickel, it has who on the nickel, children. Do you know right off the top of your head? Well, you have Thomas Jefferson. And then on the dime, you have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then some of you getting up to your money. A quarter, you have George Washington. And then you have, on a 50-cent piece, of course, uh, John F. Kennedy. And then if you go to the bills, everybody know the bills? Of course, I don't have but those one, so I know George Washington. Does anyone know what's, who's on the $2 bill? Thomas Jefferson. And then the $5 bill, you have Lincoln. And then the $10 bill, you have Alexander Hamilton. And then Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. $50 bill, don't see those very often. You have Grant, and then the $100 bill, you have uh, Benjamin Franklin. So we do the same thing. We put images on our money to exalt them, to give them uh, recognition. Of course, the Jews knew that the Romans had done this. They had put the image on the coin, and they hated that because they knew that God forbid any images. Of course, God forbid any images in worship, and you're not to worship an image, especially a man. That was totally unacceptable. Now, the denarius, which was used for this poll tax, 
had the image of Emperor Tiberius. And even worse, printed on that coin in Latin were these words. Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side of the coin was high priest, son of God. And of course that was connected to the Roman cult of that day. So can you perceive how offensive it was for a Jew to have to pay taxes with this coin which they hated? It was a very sensitive issue. It was repulsive to them to even have a denarius. And therefore, they would not even try to look at it or touch it. So it's kind of ironic, is it not? Here they are asking Jesus about this coin, and Jesus doesn't have one. He turns to them and says, give me a coin. So they are the ones that had the coin, not Jesus. And then he says to them these words, why do you test me? So before he even answers their question, he he conveys to them, he knows that they are testing him, that they're putting him to the test. Now, if he said, sure, pay your taxes to Rome, then he would turn the people against him. They would regard him as a traitor. They would regard him as a coward. But at the same time, if he said, no, tribute to Rome then he would be reported instantly to be an insurrectionist and he would be arrested as a freedom fighter within the hour. So this leads us to our third point. How does Jesus answer them? Well, we see it in verse 15c when he says, bring me a denarius, I may see it, And then in verse 16, whose image and inscription is this? 1 Corinthians 1, 24 says, Jesus is the wisdom of God. This wisdom shines forth in this passage. I mean, can't you see how brilliant he was in answering them? But not only here, time and time again throughout the Gospels, you see how brilliant Jesus was, how marvelous He was in answering the religious leaders. I mean, He answers them, but He first reveals to them that He knows what they're up to. And their reason was not to receive an answer. Their reason was to entrap Him. Who do you think you're dealing with? is what Jesus is more or less saying. I mean, this is the Lord of lords, the judge of all mankind. What hypocrites they were. And in a few short years, they would be standing before Him who is the judge of all mankind. And here they are saying, we think you're a great preacher by what they said earlier, full of integrity, preaching God's truth, but we have a question that has been bothering us, so please answer it yes or no. If Jesus had been half the man they described, then why weren't they sitting at His feet? Why weren't they learning from Him? 
Why weren't they following him instead of planning to destroy him? Again, later we see that he has some very choice words for them. In the parallel gospel in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 23, again he has some woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and cumin and have neglected the weighter matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Blind guiles, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleaned the outside of the cup and dish and inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisees first cleaned the outside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be cleaned also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he continues on and on, giving these woes to them, speaking the truth about what kind of life they lived. We could say he nailed them. Now, why do men flatter in order to destroy What's simple? Because they love their sin and power. And they're unwilling to bow before the Lord of Lords. So what does Jesus do? Does he answer yes or no? Well, no, he's too wise for that. He takes the coin from them and he turns around, as he does often, and he asks them a question. Remember when we looked Earlier when the Pharisees and I mean when the scribes and the priests and the elders asked him a question, he did the same thing. He turned around and said, Let me ask you a question. And you answer my question, and when you answer my question, then I answer your question. Well, they wouldn't answer his question. He said, I'm not going to answer your question either. Well, on this occasion, he, he turns to them and he asks them a question. And then Jesus replies, renders to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And it says, they marveled. In other words, pow. It's kind of like playing tennis. I don't know if you've ever played tennis, son. If you play tennis with somebody really good and you serve the ball over to them and then that ball comes back to you three times faster than you served it over. That's how it was here. I mean, this was lightning speed. They served him a ball and he hit it back to them so fast that they stood there and they marveled. They said, pow. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what hit them. Now this has been called the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Now now that may be over the top a lot. But what is the implication of these words that Jesus speaks here? Well, first of all, Christians must not be anti-government. In other words, we know that God is the one that controls government. God is the one that places all authority over all nations. He's in control of that. So Jesus is not saying, have nothing to do with government. He tells them to give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. 
So as Christians, we cannot refuse to pay our taxes on the grounds that we belong to another kingdom. We belong to God's kingdom. No, we have to pay our taxes. And Paul makes it very clear that God has ordained all government. He points that out in Romans <clears throat> Romans chapter 13. He says in verses 1 and 2, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So he's pointing out all authority comes from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Sometimes we may scratch our head and we may think, Lord, why in the world did you point this person over us? Well, he has a purpose. That's one thing for sure. He has a purpose even in appointing wicked rulers over us. And then verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And then he continues in verse 6 and 7, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So Paul makes it very clear what we are to do as far as our government is concerned. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So we see that Peter agrees and makes the same statement. Now, of course, in paying taxes, we also realize that we have representation. As Christians, we should be involved. We should seek to see that godly men are elected to all levels of government. We need to be involved in politics. Whether you like it or not, we should be involved in it. We should be seeking to do all we can to make sure that God gives us godly rulers. We should desire less government. There's nothing wrong with desiring less government involvement. I mean, government is not to override the authority that God has given them. We know that God has established three branches of authority. There's the home, which was established first. There was the church that was established second. And then there's government. The lowest of those three is government. And we have to keep that in mind. These are three separate entities. And government should stay out of the church's business. But as Christians, we are to influence government. In other words, government stay out of our business, but we are to be involved in their business because we are individuals, we are Christians, and therefore we work within government to bring about good for God's people. We are to be good citizens. And as citizens, we are to promote civil order. Police order is necessary. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. 
sin has to be dealt with here in this world. If we didn't have police, then criminals would run rapid and quickly take over everything. Our police need to spend more time dealing with criminals, not sitting on Lakeland giving tickets. I mean, every time I come down there, there's two or three sitting. I'm glad I ain't got a ticket yet. I try to obey the law and keep it underneath the speed, whatever it is. That's the thing about it. It changes so many times, too. I get confused. But anyway, their job is what? To deal with criminals. If we were dealing with criminals, we would not have as much problem as we have. And as citizens, we must share the burden of our society. There's needs that we have. There's roads that have to be built. There's fire stations, schools, courthouses, post office, prison. All of these things have to be paid for. That's what our taxes are to be used for. But again, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of waste in government. There's a lot of money that goes to places that it should not go to. Now, of course, one question that always comes up is what about revolutions? Can Christians revolt against wicked rulers? Now, at this time, the Roman Empire was very reasonable. It was very good in certain ways. It, was, it sought to treat its people fairly and just. That government at that time was better than a lot of the governments today in the world. And Jesus doesn't teach that society is transformed by violent revolutions or partisan politics. But by what? By regeneration. In other words, when God's law is written on the heart of a person, of an unbeliever, his entire worldview is radically changed. Man's heart moves from being selfish and focused on self and moves to being focused on God and seeking to love God and being kind to his neighbor. It moves from being corrupt to seeking to honor. It moves... Everything about his life changes. So as men change, we see that the society has changed. So the gospel changes a man's heart and therefore invades society and changes society. Now there are times when government becomes so wicked that it continued to exist and suppress Christians and promote great wickedness. And in these cases, God has given His people the right to seek to overthrow such a satanic government and replace it with a better one. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that. I'm going to encourage you to go find a book that was written in the 1600s by Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish preacher He helped write the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he wrote the books Lex Rex, Latin for the law and the prince or the law and the king. Now it's a very biblical book which defends the rule of law and the lawfulness of defensive war. And it advocates limited government. That's one of the reasons... We ought to like it. And he argues from Scripture, natural law, Scottish law, and attacks the royal abolition, which emphasizes the importance of 
covenant and the rule of law. So in his book, he includes divine law and natural law. Now, we have a number of families that homeschool, and I encourage homeschoolers to be taught what this book teaches. And therefore, your children will understand what God says as far as being a civil servant and what rights they have. Now, Samuel Rutherford, as a result of writing this book, was cited for high treason. And of course, you'd understand why. Thankfully, he died before he was carried to trial. And of course, they wanted to get rid of what he had said and they burned his book, but thankfully they couldn't burn all of them, so we still have it in print today. But what we have to understand is that when Caesar stands against God's law, when Caesar stands against Christians, we as Christians have a right to stand against Caesar. We never are to obey Caesar if he directly contradicts God's law. We see that in the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Children, remember the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar? Remember Nebuchadnezzar made a statue Everyone was to worship him. And then later he said, no one could pray except to him. Well, what did Daniel do? Well, Daniel continued to follow his regular routine of praying in the morning, at noon, and in the evening. And he would open his window. He didn't keep his window closed. He said, oh, he's passed that law, so I'm going to keep my window closed so nobody can see me. No, he kept his window open and he prayed to God. And what did that end up getting Daniel? Children, what did they do? It got him end up thrown where? Into the lion's den. But he was going to serve God and he was going to continue to pray God. And what did God do? Well, God closed the mouth of lions. You say, well, maybe those were just lions that were not very hungry on that day. Well, remember what happened? After Daniel was released from the lion's den, because Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to kill Daniel, but he had to keep his word. And then he threw the men actually in there and the lions got to have supper. So we see that he stood faithfully against Caesar. Likewise, we see that again in Acts chapter 5 when the disciples said, we must obey God rather than men. You can do to us what you want to, but we're going to continue to obey God and we must have the same mindset, same attitude. And we know that America has passed laws that said it's okay to kill the unborn. It's not okay. They say it's okay to marry the same sex. We know it's not okay. They say that you can divorce for any reason whatsoever. Well, we know that God said it's not okay to divorce for any reason whatsoever. America today says that Sunday's just like any other day of the week. We know God says no, keep it holy. And I could go on and on and on. So therefore we must stand against Caesar when Caesar stands against God's word. Now by following the Lord's teaching, Christians... Give evidence of being salt of the earth and light in darkness. We understand that we are in a war. We're in a battle. We will continue to be in a war. We will continue to be in a battle until the day that Jesus returns. Now what's sad today is that many people put Caesar on the same level as God. Jesus does not do that. He's not doing that in this passage. Yes, give him obedience as instructed by God. But on the other hand, God is our Lord. 
He trumps Caesar. They are not equals. Listen to what Jeff Thomas says, pastor in Wales. Jesus was pointing to a grubby little coin that had passed through the hands of hundreds. It had inscribed on it all the pretentious and blasphemous boasting of a man claiming to be divine, the Son of God, the high priest. Jesus is saying, give this pathetic stuff to the one who covers it with his own picture and lying words. So we must give the pagans what they deserve. Pay them back in their own coin. Let them have their idol. Do not covet their idol. Give it back to them. Now again, it's sad that so many Americans want Caesar to do everything for them. They want you to... They want you to educate their children, to take care of their children, to heal them when they're sick, to take care of them when they're old. It's as if we say, Caesar is my shepherd, I shall not want. That should never be our mindset. Only the Lord is our shepherd. We are to look to Him for everything that we need. Do not depend upon Caesar for what you need. So what Jesus is saying is in a full-scale statement of Christian teaching on, on the church and on the state and religion and society, but it is a brilliant, absolute reply to these religious hypocrites who want it to destroy Him. So we must consider how Jesus responded, how He dealt with this threat. That is what deserves your attention and my attention. We must learn to be like Jesus. We must learn to have the attitude that Jesus had. Again, these people hated Him. They were doing everything they could to destroy Him. How do you respond when people hate you? There's people out there, folks, that hate us. How do you respond to that hatred? How do you respond to them when they ask you, questions. What is your attitude toward them? Well, Paul tells us this. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, we must know the mind of Christ. How do we know the mind of Christ? By going to the Bible. It's kind of like I was talking to another pastor and I said, man, if I only had the kind of advisors that men of the past had. I mean, Oliver Cornwell had John Owens and Samuel Rudford. Well, he responded to me. He said, we do. You have his books. I said, you're right. That's where I go to get advice. Go to the books. Well, the same thing here. How do you have the mind of Christ? Well, you go to the book. And you see the mind of Christ. We see the mind of Christ on this particular instance here. And we are to have that mind. So in other words, we are to study Christ so much 
that our minds are filled with Christ so that we might have the same wisdom that Christ had. And we might display this wisdom when we get into these situations. And we will get into these situations. You know it. You've been in these situations when people ask you particular questions. Paul also says, bring every thought into captivity to Christ. Every thought. Now to do so, we must be in the Word. Memorizing the Word. Sharpening our sword. Our sword is the Word, in other words. Sharpening it. But none of this will be good if you're not in Christ. So you must be in Christ. These religious leaders were not in Christ. That's why they were so foolish, even though they were intellectual men. They were simply religious. They did not know God, even though they claimed to know God, and they claimed to know God's Word, but they did not know God because they did not know Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can know God is knowing Jesus Christ. They knew about His law, and they wrongly interpreted His law, but they had no love for God, even though they proclaimed that they had love for God, and they had no love for their fellow neighbor, which was very evident. Let us examine ourselves to see where we line up. Do we line up under these religious leaders? Merely religious on the outside, as Jesus told them, on the outside you look so good, but on the inside you're rank. You stink. Why? Because you're filthy. Because you're still in your sin, is what he was telling the religious leaders. Or do we line up with Christ? Because we have His righteousness. He has clothed us in His righteousness. He has saved us from our sins. It's not anything that we have done, but it's everything that Christ has done. And therefore we glory in that and seek to live for Him who died for me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for such a great Savior who lived a perfect life and has given us a perfect example. Father, how we pray that we would have the mind of Christ and that every thought would be brought into captivity. 
How we pray, Father, for those that are here this morning that do not understand this because they have never come to Christ. How we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that their eyes might be open to the truth of their sinfulness so that they may run to Christ for righteousness. How we pray, Father, that we who are Christians would live for Him who died for us and make an impact upon this society, that we would be salt in this world and that we would be light in this darkness. May you be glorified in all that we say and do. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.